You're listening to HIV News and Views, a podcast series from thebody.com. For a transcript of this podcast and for more interviews and first-person stories, visit us on the web. I'm Miles Helfand, Managing Editor of thebody.com. The 2009 flu season is fast approaching in the Northern Hemisphere, and this fall and winter promise to be interesting. The reason is swine flu, also known as H1N1. Before April of 2009, most of us did not even know the virus existed. Now, we're wondering what it's going to do next. To catch up on the latest, and to talk about the most important things for people with HIV to keep in mind as the next flu season approaches, I spoke by phone with Dr. Joel Gallant, one of the leading HIV specialists in the United States. This is actually the second time I've interviewed Dr. Gallant about swine flu and HIV. We also talked in April, shortly after the outbreak started. You and I last spoke at the end of April when swine flu was still known as swine flu instead of uh, novel influenza H1N1. You felt it probably was going to end up being a pretty big deal in terms of just the sheer number of people that actually were affected by the flu, but not so much in terms of the dangerousness of the actual virus. Uh, How have things actually panned out in the three months since then? Well, that prediction turned out to be true for the... uh epidemic we've seen so far. It has been a big epidemic to the point that the WHO has classified it at at the highest level uh, of um, pandemic classification. Um, Keep in mind that those levels don't reflect severity of the disease. They only reflect the uh, scope of the epidemic. It's been a big pandemic, but it has not been a big killer so far, and things have quieted down a little bit in the summer up in, in, the, in the northern part of the globe as we would expect it to. The real unknown is what's going to happen in the fall when we expect to see a, a resurgence of the epidemic. As we enter the latter part of the summer here in the northern hemisphere, the, the southern hemisphere is, is going through the latter part of its winter. How have things actually panned out down there as far as you know? There's certainly plenty of flu going around, but we have not seen a a huge spike, which is what we're kind of worried about uh, in North America and and the northern part of uh, the globe. Do we know how much of that might be due to poor reporting as opposed to the virus actually not being that dangerous? Well, it's certainly possible, although we have to remember that there has been reporting of the flu uh, from all over the world, many parts of the world. Uh, This is perhaps the best reported epidemic we've seen for this kind of thing. So I don't think it it would be just that. That's right. Actually, it's it's so well reported that the WHO recently told everybody to stop reporting it now <laughs> because there's just gotten so many. I mean, it's like basically every corner of the world now yeah. has, has documented infections. Absolutely. I think the last time I checked, it was almost 140,000 people officially diagnosed around the world, many of those in the U.S. I think it was like 40,000 or so uh, within the U.S. As of about a month ago, we were at 33,000 with 170 deaths, and worldwide, I think it was around 90,000 people infected, and that was the beginning of July. And it's probably reasonable to assume that many, many more people have have gotten infected and may even have died from it than than the, I think it's 800 worldwide, uh, officially have died. But then, of course, we have to remember that we would expect much more death with uh, the normal seasonal flu. A lot was made in the U.S. about the fact that we had 36,000 deaths from seasonal flu, you know, a typical winter flu versus 170 from H1N1. 
And yet the, the 170 deaths certainly got a lot more attention than the 36,000 deaths from seasonal flu. But there is a big difference in terms of who is at risk for death with this flu versus seasonal flu. And that's where there's a lot of very important differences. What are those differences? Seasonal flu typically affects uh, people at extremes of age. So older people or very young people, infants, uh, or people with chronic medical conditions. What's different about H1N1 is that it, in a way, a little bit like the 1918 flu pandemic, tends to affect young adults more severely. And in fact, uh, people who were born before 1957, if they're, if they're healthy, are generally uh, somewhat protected. Then the further out they are from 1957, the, the greater their risk. So this is not the typical pattern you would see with seasonal flu, where uh, it's, it's mostly going to be older people. Other risk factors for severe disease in, with this flu would be diabetes, uh, chronic lung disease such as asthma, obesity, interestingly enough, pregnancy, and immunodeficiency, which could include uh, HIV-related immunodeficiency or AIDS. Do we actually have any numbers in terms of uh, how many of the people who are officially infected or even who have officially died had HIV? I haven't seen numbers like that. I, I would imagine that it's not a huge percentage in part because we can treat the immunodeficiency of HIV, and if people are on treatment and have uh, decent CD4 cells, they're probably not at uh, significantly greater risk in comparison with somebody who has a chronic immunodeficiency that, that's not treatable. So you would still feel then that the precautions that you gave a few months ago are, are pretty similar then in terms of people who have HIV and might be concerned about swine flu, especially over the upcoming months? I think uh, it's something we all have to be concerned about. I think for the average person with HIV in, the, in this country who's on antiretroviral therapy and is doing fine, I don't think their concern should be much greater than they would be for the general population. But I don't want to downplay the potential severity of this if we see uh, a resurgence in the epidemic in the fall, as we expect to see. For me, as, as a journalist, this is a tough balance to strike because you, on one hand, want to inform people responsibly and you want to provide the full story and explain exactly what's going on in, in well-measured terms. But at the same time, you've got stuff coming out from our own government. I think it was uh, at the Government Accountability Office issued a report pretty recently to Congress saying, we are not ready if there is a major outbreak of swine flu this fall news organizations are jumping a bit on that bandwagon and, and resounding an alarm that had faded a bit over the past couple months as far as what can we expect, what should we be afraid of, and what should we be prepared for as in the U.S. and the rest of the Northern Hemisphere gets ready for the fall and the winter to come. This is completely unpredictable. Uh, I think there's no question that we're going to have an increase in number of cases in the fall. Everybody knows that that's going to happen. The question is, will it be uh, a disastrous pandemic like 1918, or will it be a more moderate pandemic like we've seen in some other years since then? We are absolutely not prepared for a 1918-type flu pandemic. Whether we're prepared for a more moderate epidemic is unclear. I would say that a lot of people are, are a little bit pessimistic about that as well. Wow. So where does that leave us? Should we, <laughs> should we panic? No, no, we shouldn't panic because, uh, in, in part because there's really not much the individual can do. There are certainly flu vaccines in development, but usually a flu vaccine takes about six months to be developed, and we're hoping that the, we will have it in October or November. Of course, the, the question of supply is important. Uh, will we have enough, and if not, who will get 
the, the vaccine. Another difference between 1918 and, and 2009 is that in addition to hopefully a vaccine, we'll, we also have drugs that can treat this flu. And so far, uh, the flu drugs that we use are still effective. That could change, but for now, they're, they're quite effective. Now, you're speaking about Tamiflu and Relenza. Yeah, right? Tamiflu and Relenza. Those two drugs are active against this flu virus. In 1918, we had neither a vaccine nor did we have treatment, and we didn't have antibiotics for people who develop bacterial complications. So there really was uh, virtually nothing we could do about the flu back then, and that's no longer the case. So those are really important points then. In terms of the, the strains themselves, there is some rough similarity. They're both forms of H1N1, right? Right. But the environment is just so utterly different this, yeah. this time around that almost regardless, we would probably be better off? I certainly think we'll be better off. Of course, there's a, a potential for more rapid spread just because the world is a much smaller place than it was in 1918. But even in 1918, there really wasn't much that could be uh, done to, to prevent global spread. And that's, the, that's certainly the case now. So then when it comes down to the practical nuts and bolts for people who are living with HIV, what can people do to make themselves safe and who should be most concerned about keeping themselves safe? I think that the people who should be most concerned are people with very low CD4 counts and people with higher CD4 counts should probably have the same level of concern that anyone else would have. What can you do? Um, there's not a whole lot you can do. You Obviously, you'd probably want to avoid traveling into a place that was in the middle of a, of a big outbreak, but as we saw with this pandemic, things may have started out in Mexico, but they quickly spread beyond that. So restricting travel is probably of limited benefit. Uh, I think the people who actually are sick have, have more, uh, a bit more control over spread of flu than people who aren't sick. People who are sick need to stay home for at least seven days or 24 hours after they recover. They need to cover their sneezes. They need to wash their hands a lot and try to avoid spreading it to other people. But if you're a person who doesn't have the flu and you're out in the world in the company of others, I'm not sure there's a whole lot you can really do to prevent infection other than just hand washing and the usual precautions. So you wouldn't recommend maybe wrapping yourself in saran wrap and not shaking anyone's <laughs> hands and putting a, a, a face mask on? I mean, that, well, okay, that's, that's a bit over the top, <laughs> but, but would you actually recommend something like, you know, maybe you should avoid shaking people's hands for the next year? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I, I'm almost uh, become, getting worried that shaking hands is going out of fashion in, in general anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, in the middle of a, of a flu epidemic, I suppose that would be one thing. I, I mean, certainly we know that handshaking is a, is a good way to spread flu. It doesn't have to be from a sneeze or from a cough. You know, washing hands is a great way to limit any damage that's done from touching. Masks are more helpful for people ha who have the flu than they are for people who don't. A very simple surgical mask put on somebody who's got the flu will help to prevent spraying the flu virus into the air. But if you're wearing a mask to try to avoid the flu, it's the typical masks aren't quite as effective. They need to be a more expensive, well-fitting respirator-type mask, which is not as widely available as the surgical masks. You're one for one so far in terms of predicting how the swine flu epidemic is going to unfold. Would you care to go for two for two? <laughs> All right, I'm going to uh, try to be an optimist, and I'm going to say that we are going to see a moderately big epidemic in the fall, but that will have a fairly 
low fatality rate in comparison with both the 1918 flu pandemic as well as seasonal flu outbreaks. I'll predict that we will not see the kind of disastrous 1918-type pandemic that is so famous now and that is so dreaded. I feel better. <laughs> Let's just hope we don't see a, um, you know, the, the nightmare the scenario is a, a genetic reassortment between the H1N1 and then the H5N1 that could result in a, a highly lethal, highly contagious pandemic. I think that's unlikely. If I were betting money, I would bet against it. But I can't let this call go without at least mentioning the nightmare scenario. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I suppose what it comes down to for all of us, and this is this seems to be what, what you have said over, over the past few minutes, is that there is a limit to the extent that we actually, as individuals, have control over what's going to happen. But there are some common sense precautions that we can take, whether we have HIV, whether we don't, whether we have low CD4 counts, whether we don't, to keep ourselves as protected as possible and keep other people protected. That's absolutely right. Um, common sense precautions. In the end, uh, my motto is don't worry about things you can't control. <laughs> uh, easier said than done. Yeah, if only. But <laughs> this is a good start. Dr. Gallant, thank you so much. My pleasure, Mike. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thank you for listening to HIV News and Views. For more podcasts, be sure to visit us online at www.thebody.com.